Welcome back to Working Man's Pod. Welcome. Kind of weird recording before the next one is released. Yeah, you just kind of let the listeners inside the uh, <laughs> inside the <laughs> secret inner workings of Working Man's Pod. Oh, oops. Yeah, no, it's all good. We are recording ahead of time. We wanted to make this an every other week release because we both have jobs and life responsibilities that make it so that we can't really commit to doing it every week. But the last episode, we you know, already edited and got ready to go online. And um, we just so happened to have time in between that and recording the next episode. So here we are, ready to talk about a Grateful Dead show from Wednesday, April 23rd, 1969, live from The Ark in Boston, Massachusetts. And I guess, yeah, you're right. We, we don't know. We don't really have any feedback for episode three at this point. We've got some for episode two, which has been good and appreciate everyone who's reached out and um, said, Hey, given us, you know, a thumbs up, a like a follow on or subscribe, I guess, depending on your platform, Apple, Google, Spotify, whatever. If you're using our web player, that's awesome too. Um, So thank you all for listening so far. If you are just listening to this one for the first time, basically we spend each episode talking about an individual night an individual show in grateful dead history and right now episodes three and four so the last one in this one are two shows that were submitted to us by a man named jim in maryland who told us about the difference between worthy and worth it when it comes to grateful dead music he wanted some more warts and all listening compared to the recent uh dave's picks volume 41 release from 1977 so we got two show wrecks from him. The first was at, covered in episode three, October 12th, 1968, at the Avalon Ballroom in San Francisco. And then this is the second from, as I said, April 23rd, 1969, so six months later, and on the road, which I think makes a big difference compared to the hometown show that we heard in um, episode three. Before we get into this show... I think we should go to uh, a segment and hear about the days between. There were days, there were days, there were days between. Now the days between have been okay. I uh, had a wedding in Leesburg, Virginia, and had a, a quick story about the Grateful Dead coming up in my life while I was in Leesburg. Um, we stayed at a hotel that was, we, the entire group of 20 in the friend group, stayed at a hotel that um, was about a five-minute walk to Spanky's Shenanigans Pub in downtown Leesburg. We went to Spanky's Friday night when we got in, and leaving on Friday night, walking back home to the hotel, I saw on the board, uh, yes, we're open, at 8 a.m. for breakfast. And I was like, breakfast at Spanky's. That sounds like the place to be. Um, I think it's important to know Spanky's is not just like a bar in Leesburg. I think it's like the bar in Leesburg, Virginia. Wait, is Leesburg, Virginia where Liberty University is? It's, mm, I think that's Lynchburg, right? Okay. Where? So what is in Leesburg, Virginia? Spanky's Shenanigans Pub. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Roger that. Um. And in there, go back at 8 a.m., the barn is empty. 
well, sorry, half the barn is empty. When you walk in, there is a smoking half and a non-smoking half, and they're divided by like these glass panels. So you can see into the smoking half. The smoking half is packed. <laughs> <laughs> and the non-smoking half is dead. Um, so in the non-smoking half, my buddy Jeff and I are, are having breakfast and a drink at Spanky's, and uh, the waitstaff who's there serving us is the same waitstaff who like kicked us out at 1.30 in the morning. Wow. <laughs> like, oh, the Spankies to Spankies, you know, wake up shift. It's got to be brutal. But we were just chatting. I was catching up with him and we were talking about the Grateful Dead. And then like 20 minutes in, Shakedown Street came on the jukebox. And I was like, oh, no way. And the waitress came back over. And again, we are like two of four people in this entire room. So everyone can hear us chit-chatting. I was like, did you put this on? Because you heard us talking about the Grateful Dead. And she goes, no, but it put a smile on my face. She's like, I put on the Grateful Dead shuffle on this thing every morning. And like every morning that she has to work. It's like, oh, that's so cool. So that was my little interaction with a, a deadhead this weekend at Spanky Shenanigans Pub. We're everywhere. Wow. <laughs> my days between story is I was on our working man's pod Twitter account at working man's pod. If you don't follow it. And, um, I saw a tweet from David Gans, who many of you are likely familiar with. He hosts among other things, tales from the golden road on Sundays on the grateful dead serious channel. And he's written a number of really good books about the grateful dead. I have, I had to that point read just one of them, the oral history of the grateful dead called, let me get the title right because I don't want to. Yeah. So this book is called This Is All a Dream We Dreamed, An Oral History of the Grateful Dead by Blair Jackson and David Gans. It's excellent. If you enjoy the oral history format where it's like the story is told through interviews with the primary players, you'll definitely like it. So David had posted on Twitter that he had like basically, hey, my books are for sale on my website. And if you order, I'll sign it for you. And so I was like, let me see what other books he's written because I like that one so much. So I bought this book that I'm holding for you to see, not really anyone else, called Conversations with the Dead by David Gans. And it was pretty cool because I, I ordered it. And then like literally five minutes later, he emailed me and was like, hey, who do you want me to sign this to? David. And I was like, oh man, that's rad. Like this, it's for Alex. You don't really need to write anything else. I appreciate it. Yeah, that's so neat, though. Um, this book is Conversations with the Dead, available on David Gans's website, is really cool. It's all just interviews with members of the band and related parties over the years. And I have a quote that I'm going to read to you later on during the show from Jerry Garcia that's fantastic. But there are a lot of really good <laughs> quotes <laughs> in this book. I think the earliest interviews are from 1977. And so it's a, a little bit of a shame that I got it after the episode we did on Dave's Picks 41 because there's some good 77 content in here, but that's okay. So that's my uh, days between. It's just I'm excited to have this book, and um, it was cool that David reached out you know, individually to see what I wanted signed in it. He also included a bunch of other cool stuff within the package. He sent a CD of his music, a couple of guitar picks with like his logo on it, and... Um, a postcard. So thank you, David Gans. Yeah. And then last thing I have to correct two things from a, a corrections and omissions section. I like it. Yes. Uh, the first one is that when you asked if I had ever been to a concert at a venue, like a tiny, tiny venue, 
Um, I told you I'd been to the Troubadour in Philadelphia. The Texas Troubadour Theater is in Nashville, and I've been to that, um, but obviously that's not in Philadelphia. The show in Philly that I saw was at the Trocadero Theater in Philadelphia, so I just wanted to just wanted to correct that and apologize for that. Um, and then the second correction was I said in the last episode, after some thought, that Dark Star was not a top 10 dead song for me. And we'll, we'll talk about when we get into the Dark Star in the show, but that might, uh, that might need to be corrected. Well, let's also add, though, it's not that you said that and then there wasn't any conversation afterward. After that, I think I got you to agree that it might be their most important song. So it's not like you were anti-Dark Star. No, I definitely am. (laughs) Definitely am not anti-Dark Star. But I sat down and I thought about it, and then I listened to the uh, April 69 version of it that we'll dive into in a sec. And I I think it is a top 10 dead song for me, in addition to being probably their most important piece of work. Okay, cool. Well... Good corrections and omissions. I don't have any specific ones, although I will apologize to the audience for often saying song when I mean show. I noticed that when I was editing the last episode. So if you hear me say this song when I mean show, or I guess potentially vice versa, this show when I mean song, uh, apologies and thank you for bearing with me. <laughs> All right, let's get into this show, Dave. What do you say? Let's, I say, let's play that intro. Okay, let's do it. So again, this show was on Wednesday, April 23rd, 1969 at the Ark. It's night three of a really great three-night run that the dead played at this theater, the Ark. A lot of fans I've read commenting on Reddit and other places that they would like this three-night run released as a box set. And I can totally see why. Did you did you listen to much of Nights 1 and 2 when you were preparing for this episode? No, I didn't, but I should have because this they're just hot like the whole time. So I'm sure Nights 1 and 2 were great too. Yeah, Nights 1 and 2 are uh, maybe even hotter, honestly. It's interesting. I, I mean, I can... So night one... All right, so I guess we should talk about the intros to the shows now. Um, so night one of this run is really like the Dead's first ever show in Boston. Um, they had played one other show there in 1967, but it was just kind of a one-off. And so they didn't have like a huge base of fans in Boston. And they weren't a nationally known act, really, at this point. They were touring all over the country, but they didn't have, like, a big dead crowd. So on night one, I think it's the promoter of the or the owner of the venue it could have been, he introduces the band by saying, these are some guys from the West Coast. <laughs> that's his introduction. <laughs> Verbatim, that's the entirety of it. I'm going to introduce these people. Um, there's some guys from the uh, West Coast. This night, night three of the of the run, after having seen them for two nights live, the introduction is... Listen, uh, I said this last night, I'm going to say it again. Monday night, I didn't know how to introduce the uh, people up here because I'd never heard them live. And uh, last night I did, and tonight I know even better. This is the best fucking rock and roll band in the whole world. At your service. 
Yeah, and the crowd so, goes nuts. <laughs> yeah. Uh, needless to say, the dead had won this man over, um, as well as the the Boston crowd at large. So, um, again, three-night run at the Ark. The Ark is a, I mean, it's right in the thick of Fenway in Boston. It is literally dead behind, like across the street from Fenway Park, right behind the center field bleachers. So if someone were ever to hit a 700-foot home run to dead center field at Fenway, it would hit this building. When Giancarlo does it next year. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So (laughs) the address is 15 Lansdowne Street, or was. Um, It opened on New Year's Day 1969, so it had only been open for four months, with um, a purpose of becoming, and I quote, Boston's psychedelic music venue. However, it was closed by the summer of 1969 due to poor management. (laughs) (laughs) And the space was then taken over by another venue in town called the Boston Tea Party, which is a very historic rock club. Um, They were looking for more space. And so they opened in this venue in 19 July of 1969. So like I said, that place, Boston Tea Party, legendary concert venue. Some of the bands that it hosted were the Allman Brothers, the Birds, Miles Davis, Bo Diddley, Fleetwood Mac, Jethro Tull, Elton John, B.B. King, the Kinks, Led Zeppelin, Little Richard, Van Morrison, Santana, Rod Stewart, The Velvet Underground, The Who, Howlin' Wolf, Neil Young, and Frank Zappa. Oh, my God. So all of those people played at this place, the Boston Tea Party, in its like three years of existence. So the the timeline, basically, New Year's Day 69 at 15 Lansdowne Street, the arc opens. Pretty much right after this show, it closes. <laughs> Then in July, the Boston Tea Party moves into this venue and they run it for like another few years. But the Dead actually came back and played in the same space, labeled then as the Boston Tea Party, in October of 69 and then again on New Year's 69 into 70 for the only run of New Year's shows that they ever did outside of San Francisco. So they hit this audience hard in April of 69 and they liked the audience liked them so much that they were welcomed back in October and December of the same year for more three night stands. So nine nights in this same space, although with different names um, throughout 69, which I think is kind of cool today. This is the location of the house of blues, Boston. So if you've ever been to a show there, then you have been to this venue. It's interesting because they, they tore down the building next to it and combined them into one address at 15 Lansdowne Street. So there's more space there than there was at the Ark. Um, that location is actually the largest of all the House of Blues locations. Capacity is 2,500. Mm-hmm. But the Ark on this night when the dead were playing there held about 1,400 people. So not quite as small as the Avalon Ballroom for the last show that we heard, but still a pretty small crowd. 1,400 people, you know, not very many. Yeah. So that's where this show was being played, at the Ark, right in the thick of Fenway in Boston. Yankees-Red Sox overlapped with them Monday and Tuesday. The Yankees won both games. Good job by them. Nice. Then you have this Wednesday, the Red Sox have left town, and the, the dead are, are the biggest show in town. There's a really, on um, Grateful Dead Sources is the website, uh, there's a great article that they posted that appeared in the Boston Globe on April 26th, 1969. So that would be the Saturday paper of this week by Bud Collins, who went on to be a legendary Boston sports writer, but at this point he was writing about culture. 
and the article is the generation gap on Lansdowne Street. And the beginning is <laughs> he's talking to some hippie chick and she doesn't know who Ted Williams is. And he's kind of flustered by that. Um, and then he ends the article in a, a nice little journalistic flair by saying that chicky who asked Ted who next time I see her, I'm going to say pig pen who. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's a good article by him. It's, it's really cool. Check out dead sources if you want to read the whole article, but it, it talks about just what it was like to see the dead at this time, how loud they were. And it also talks about how Mickey Hart's grand grandparents came to Boston to watch this show and were wow. seated on the stage for a loud rock concert in 1969 <laughs> uh, a great show a great quote by her is we go to see them every time they're near Brooklyn I bake cookies for them hashish brownies no no she she smiled as the Boston yellow pages flashed on the wall then Jack Benny's face then Mr. America comics parentheses it was a good light show close parentheses so no no chocolate chip cookies they're just like any other boys she said they like chocolate chip cookies and music. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, that's kind of a cute little anecdote, but based the, the real gist of this is that this was the loudest band in the world at this time. Their sound system was playing this music at about 130 decibels, which is apparently the same level as a jet. So they were just blowing the place out at this point in time. And that makes sense because 69 Dead, they played like harder than I think any other era of the Grateful Dead. So that checks out. So in addition to the things I just said about, you know, the Yankees being in town around this time and it being April 1969, the other things that were happening kind of in the world at this point, this show, April 23rd, was the same day that Sirhan Sirhan was sentenced to death for killing RFK. So that was kind of in the culture at this point in time. We are three months into the Nixon presidency. So obviously a huge cultural change there. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of people I've heard say that Nixon basically ran against the sixties. Like that was his entire platform <laughs> and um, it was obviously successful. So we're three months into the Nixon presidency. The number one song in the country right now is Aquarius slash let the sunshine in by the fifth dimension. You know that song? Yeah, I think so. So that's the number one song in the country. And the number one album is the Broadway soundtrack to a play called Hair that is all about hippies. It was a big album that year. It won the Grammy for like best adapted soundtrack or something like that. And it won a couple of Tonys this year too. In music, this is three months after the events of the Get Back documentary about the Beatles. So their their last show on that rooftop in London was in January. Then this was in April. And The Who had just released Pinball Wizard as a single. Tommy would be released in May. So kind of a, an interesting time. Also, obviously, four months before Woodstock. The, uh, the tour that they were on was like a 17-day mini tour, is how I would describe it. They started with university shows in Utah, Arizona, and Colorado, Then they stopped off in the Midwest for shows in Omaha and then two more college shows at Washington University of St. Louis and Purdue. Then they hopped out to the Northeast, played one night in Worcester, Mass., and then these three nights at the Ark before closing the show with two nights in Chicago and one in Minneapolis. Content from the second night in Chicago and the Minneapolis show were released as Dick's Picks Volume 26. So you get kind of an amalgam of those couple nights playing a lot of the same songs that they were 
um, this night and this run at the Ark. 69 overall was the band's busiest touring year. They played 156 shows, and pretty much if they weren't on the road, they were playing every night in the Bay Area, whether at Avalon, the Fillmore, the Matrix, uh, Winterland by the end of the year. They were just, they were killing it at home, and they were getting out on the road all the time. They played 23 states and Canada in 1969 in literally every part of the country, as far southeast in Florida, as far northwest in Washington, obviously California, specifically San Diego, Southern California, and then Worcester, um, I believe would have been the furthest northeast that they got, but they also played Syracuse, Toronto. I mean, they, they traversed the entire, pretty much the entire continent. In addition to touring, the band released Live Dead in November, a great live album. Those shows were from, I think, March and February of 69. And Oxo Moxoa was a their studio album, which was released in June. They were already playing those shows on this tour. They had finished mastering it and I think uh, and recording parts of it the month before this in March of 69. It's also interesting this year because Working Man's Dead would come out the following February and those songs start to add, start to become part of their live repertoire by the end of 69. So not quite this early, but if you fast forward six months ahead, you can hear maybe Uncle John's band or Dire Wolf. Um, 69, also good coverage on live releases. You've got, like I said, Dick's Picks 26, and um, Volume 16 is from later in 1969, I think in, um, I think November of 69. There are also two Dave's Picks concerts from 1969. There are a number of box set releases, um, shows on road trips, and the download series. In total, parts of 25 of their 156 shows in 69 have been officially released, if you include the set that they played at Woodstock. So that's what was going on with the dead and with the world in 1969 when this show was happening. Anything else to add, Dave, before we get into the set list? Yeah, actually, two months later uh, is when Neil Armstrong walked on the moon, right? So, I mean, just kind of on the point with like Nixon as the president and Woodstock coming up. Um, the, you know, this is a huge, like huge, massive, massive history book moments are are happening in 1969 very very true okay let's let's get into the show as i said the show starts with some great pre-show banter uh that introduction is actually why i knew about this show before we recorded it because i'd I'd heard that before it's so great the guy (laughs) is very clearly won over by the dead and it's just it's great stuff um so there's a very like merry pranksterish start to the show after that. This guy says they're the greatest fucking rock and roll band in the world. And what do they go into? Not a rock song. No. Nope. He, he was a friend of mine. <laughs> deflates immediately <laughs> I, I mean this is a 
it's a fine song. It's actually a beautiful song if you go and like listen to it without the intro. <laughs> but I mean, come on, guys. Like, you just got the best introduction you've probably ever gotten as a band. How do you not come out with something like the eleven or turn on your love light even as an opener? Or, you know, dare I say it, rip into a new potato caboose off the bat. How do you not come out with something? And instead they come out with, it's actually, it's a beautiful song. It's just, like you said, it's not a rock song. No, the nights one and two, they opened with respectively hard to handle and sitting on top of the world. Those are rock songs. But I genuinely think that it is like their prankster-ness that made them play this after that intro because like they couldn't resist like <laughs> just putting a twist on him saying that and then they thought it was probably funny to do this. Um, and I agree. It it did kind of, once I kind of connected that in my head, it, it made me laugh. Um, it is a very sweet show opener and they come full circle with this soft song at the end of the show, which I kind of appreciate. But um, this was a, a relative rarity. It was played 26 times by the dead, all between 65 and 70. And this was the first of two times ever that it was used as a show opener. So it was not a normal thing that they would do. I don't think they would have done it if that guy hadn't called them the greatest fucking rock band in the world. It's interesting. This is where I'm going to break out my quote from this Conversations with the Dead book. Because Jerry is really getting after the slide guitar in this song. Not for the only time in this show. And one of the quotes in this book, in this interview with Jerry that David Gans did in 1981 was, Gans, did it embarrass you as much as it embarrassed us that we are learned to play slide on the road for two or three years? Garcia, it still embarrasses me, but luckily it doesn't embarrass him. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If you listen to some like late 70s, early 80s dead, Bob is really fighting the fight with a slide guitar. And um, I don't know when Jerry would have learned to play it, but he sounds good on it. He uses it sparingly throughout this show. I think that most notably it's here and on Hard to Handle that you can hear it the clearest. But it sounds good, and I I like what he's doing on it. Did you um, make any note about the slide sound? No, um, I didn't. Slide guitar is hard to play. I can only imagine and i respect that bob put in the time to learn it because he he plays it fine now i mean he does it with dead and company i'm sure he does it with the wolf brothers but it was a lot on some songs in the early 80s when both of them were on slide at the same time it's like what the what the hell is going on right now so the only the only other things to note with this song he was a friend of mine um from the tapers compendium another grateful dead book this was the quote he was a friend of mine opens the show with a down home flavor Yet it's a tad deranged, and wanting more of this, the boys sense that they need to spread out. Thus, Dark Star. So that's where they transition to from this is Dark Star. Not before, however, a fan yells, Morning Dew! Um, I think because that had been the song in the two-slot each of the nights before this. Oh. To which Jerry responds, No. And then the guy, the guy <laughs> says something back, and you can't really hear what it is, and then Jerry says, Fuck you. <laughs> very sardonically <laughs> then phil adds you'll have to stick around for morning dew and jerry adds on right till morning and then they go from here into dark star which begins 
what I have written down as a first set mega jam. There are no tuning breaks. They just go right through from here to the end of set one, playing for like 70 minutes straight. Yeah. And it, it begins with, um, I would say, a, a quite a good Dark Star. What are your thoughts? Quite good indeed. Um, this Dark Star had me reconsider a lot of what I thought my like my Life. top list of dead songs were. What did you say? I said of your life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, kind of like I, I'm always kind of more into like the more upbeat, rocky um, songs and less into like the spacey jams, but not anymore. Um, this, this version is beautiful. Like the entire 20 minutes are, are so good. And I think part of that is that in the last version that we listened to, there's no keys and they were just kind of going wherever, <laughs> wherever they wanted to. I think the keys here, like they get to go wider out cause the keys can kind of take them places and they can explore a little, but that exploration kind of had a purpose. Something about like they went further into the jam. So they went wider but this felt better. It felt more locked in, which is kind of a oxymoron, but that's what I thought listening to this a couple times was they're getting weirder, but also getting better. That makes sense. There are some parts, and this is a 21 minute long dark star. It's not short by any means. And I do definitely understand what you're saying about them going further out the keys are, I think they do add a lot, especially the electric organ sound, because it's kind of a weird sound. I don't know how to, do, twinkly is not the right word, but it's like extraterrestrial almost, the way that it sounds. That's a good word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that really adds, I think, to the whole <laughs> pastiche of what's going on in this song. Yeah, so I agree. The The addition of the organ definitely stands out. The intro jam lasts about six minutes and then Jerry starts singing, which is like, I think a consistent rhythm with what you hear in a lot of this era, like that five, six, seven minute intro jam before the singing. It was also six minutes before they got into the singing in the last one that we heard from 68. And then post the transitive nightfall of diamonds lyric, we get like a really feedbacky, like a noise section um, with big set two energy. And then Jerry kind of pulls us back out of that and into a more rockin' vibe. And so I think that maybe that is part of what you're talking about, about like purposeful and like going somewhere where even when they go completely out into space and it's very, very free form feedback noise, they still have a point that they're getting back to with the, you know, more of the rock vibe. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, as the song is starting starting to end, uh, 17 minutes in, that 17-ish minute mark, that's just like the peak of this whole journey. Like it's all been building to that and building to that and building to that. I 
found myself repeating this song, which is weird for a 21-minute song. It's that good, though. It's kind of cool. There's So right after what the part you're talking about, the 17-minute part, there is a loud applause when we come back for the final verse, like direct from deep space into singing. There is like a huge moment of recognition from the crowd of like, man, that was really cool, what we just heard. <laughs> the drummers are back and forth between percussion, like hand percussion and the drum sets, but it's only hand drums for the first two-thirds of the song, for like the first... I don't know, 15 minutes almost. And that's kind of cool. And I also wonder if Pigpen was on percussion. I think he is. I think you can hear him on a conga drum um, in the beginning because that's something that we didn't really say. Like with the addition of Tom Stanton on keys, Pigpen no longer played keys, which is fine. I mean, he wasn't like a... If you hear his keys on early Dark Stars, he's basically playing the same thing over and over again. Like he's not an accomplished keyboardist. And so with Tom Stanton doing weirder stuff... It basically frees Pigpen up to just sing and be a frontman on songs that he's singing. And otherwise, I think he was just kind of trying to fill space wherever he could, whether with conga drums, which is the way that he was listed in that article I was talking about as like the dead's conga drummer. <laughs> and um, then later on in this first set, and it's a sin, you can hear him on harmonica, which he breaks out again later on in the show. So he that's kind of what he was doing at this point in time. One more thing on Dark Star before we move off of it. The Live Dead Dark Star, which was recorded, like I said, just like a month or two before this, I think many people view as the Dark Star. I didn't re-listen to it for this episode. I probably should have. But I do think that it has a lot of the same energy as this show. All of the ingredients are kind of the same. And if anything, maybe Tom Stanton was more comfortable in his role by now. I'm not trying to compare one to the other. I'm just commenting on the fact that they're so close together in time and so if you do like that one you may also like this one so from here they go into saint stephen kind of like the last show just a nice transition it makes a lot of sense to me that these two songs were paired together the drums come in hot and jerry comes in like even hotter it's really cool i described this song in the last episode as having renaissance fair vibes and this one was especially ren fairy to me with the organ edition what did you think of this St. Stephen? I thought it was solid. I think you know, it's easy to compare it to the 68 show because we were just listening to that. And I thought that the 68 show, it was a better song, but it, we talked about how it had like that whiplash energy, whereas this was kind of a more consistent, upbeat uh, song. And it's not, St. Stephen is not the song I would choose to bifurcate, which they do here with It's a Sin in the Middle. I think it's like kind of too mainstream, streamlined to to do that. But also, you know, this is night three, so maybe they just really wanted to mix it up. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, so yeah, your comparison to the 68 version, I think is a good point. That version, I think, is better than this one. Partially because I think that this song is better when it feels like it's veering off the rails at any given moment. It's like more kind of frenetic and crazy this was like you said it's more consistent which could be a good thing or a bad thing for me not exactly what i'm looking for out of this song not that i disliked it and i did like the transition into it's a sin um so that was actually the same transition that they ran uh just a few nights ago at on um, april 17th but those are the only two times that they played this progression where they went saint stephen it's a sin back to saint stephen so twice within a span of a week and then never again 
I can see why they did this transition, but it is interesting. They cut St. Stephen right at the like lady fingers part where they get into that. And then they don't bring that part back. They go right back into kind of the end of um, St. Stephen. So you miss kind of the middle segment of St. Stephen, which is fine. I mean, you know, it is what it is, but yeah, I thought that it's a sin. I liked it. I mean, what did you think? Because you're more of a blues head than I am. Mm-hmm. What was what was your thought on this song? I also liked it. and I just loved the harmonica. And maybe that's because you don't get a lot of harmonica listening to Grateful Dead. So it was like new and exciting. Yeah. Um, the harmonica does sound really good. Yeah. I totally agree. Are you familiar with the term blues, B-L-O-O-Z-E? No. So I think, as I understand it, it's like kind of slang for like white singers going a little bit over the top to like sound like a traditional generally black blues singer. I think that Jerry's voice is like too sweet and and honest to him to like really be doing that at least on this song. Maybe later in the show I could come back to that with him. Bob is a huge culprit throughout the 80s. I mean, like Little Red Rooster, you can't really find a version of that where it's not like Bob blues in it up. <laughs> and um, it's interesting because Pigpen doesn't really do it. It just feels like more natural to him because like his vibe is just like more authentically R&B bluesy. Maybe because his dad was an R&B DJ, like a disc jockey for if that was his profession. And so it's it's potentially, it could be the case that Pigpen like grew up with it in his DNA well, in a way. I was going to push back a little. I think you're right on like the tone of his voice, but sometimes the words he would like improv with and turn on your love light. He kind of, you know, steals from black culture and black artists. So like, yeah, you're right. But also I think, but like you talked about, if he grew up with it, these were a part Mm -hmm. of, these were always in the back of his mind, you know, in his music upbringing. So, yeah, that would be, I think a common criticism of the dead, maybe in this era, especially because they didn't have that many songs. And so they're playing like the same ones night in and night out. And um, I think that some people would maybe criticize their bluesiness. I don't think that it, I think that with Jerry's singing, like he's very, he's like an earnest singer and his voice is just really sweet. And so I don't really get that vibe from him, but you know, something to point out. So it's a sin. I, I, I did like this song and I did think that it was kind of a cool transition. Like I said, the other thing is this is really like the last soft moment of set one. You have, um, he was a friend of mine, which is kind of quiet. Dark Star, which goes out into some like soft, spacey parts of the jam. St. Stephen, the in- intro part was not like as fiery as they often are with it. Um, and then you get into It's a Sin. And there, there's a part in the middle where Jerry is absolutely shredding on a solo. This is like peak Jerry as a shredder, 1969, I think. Like this is like the closest that his guitar solos sound to Hendrix, for example, is like 69. It's like a powerhouse a lot of the time, which is awesome. But then I think in as they moved deeper into the 70s, they became more of a nuanced band and started doing different things. And so he didn't always maybe need to be just an absolute <laughs> shredder the way he was at this show. But then they get it back into the St. Stephen reprise after It's a Sin. And then they're just really rocking from that point onward in set one. I thought that the reprise was um, actually stronger than the beginning St. Stephen really rock and return. 
And then this was also the first show that they played St. Stephen without the William Tell Bridge. So a sign of things to come there. But also it it really worked because it led, they cut out, like I said, the Ladyfingers part um, and then the the William Tell Bridge. And I think that that leads this St. Stephen much more smoothly into cryptical envelopment. What did you think about the reprise? Totally agree. Uh, I was nodding along with you the whole time, which great for a podcast. Uh, but yes, I, I completely agree. cryptical i believe so i thought that this was a smooth transition and then like a good short version you know the classic this is kind of the way that they they did it was a short cryptical into a other one back into the longer part of cryptical so yeah i mean i don't really have much to add i thought it was kind of impressive that they found room to get a little bit spacey within this version within this intro part of cryptical envelopment like it's it's only two minutes long and yet somehow they kind of find space in the middle which is cool and different uh and then there's a 44 second drums after this which was also good and kind of a good little bridge between cryptical and the other one what did you think of this little segment little segment nice little setup i think i was going to talk about this in cryptical part two but when you talked about it being spacey it's because i think that the cryptical two halves are the the run of songs most improved by the mm. return of the keys. So I think maybe that helped it go a little spacier. Wow. Yeah, that makes sense. The other one, I all I mean, I loved this segment in the sixty eight show. I think it's even better here in sixty nine. The other one is agree. is really, really good. The intro jam is like really rocking. Hot. Yeah. I mean, Jerry is absolutely shredding. Phil is just dropping bombs left and right. And the the drums are good. And TC is keeping like a, he's like Fats Domino, just keeping a heavy left hand on that keyboard. Um, it's just, it's a great beginning to the music on this song. Yeah, this whole suite, I think, most improved by the keys coming back. And then the 68 show we talked about how phil was like cranked up on that tape you know whatever yeah not so much in this whole show but this was the first song where we could really hear phil taking charge was you know what seven eight songs in i think you can hear him pretty clearly in dark star but um that's always kind of everyone taking charge and going in different directions (laughs) so i definitely see your point there I wrote that you can tell he's making use of the entire fretboard, Phil. He's just all over the place, up and down and up and down, and it's cool. It's It sounds really good, and it's it makes it sound more interesting. But, yeah, I mean, kind of in chronological order, the notes that I had after the intro jam, there's a huge applause after the first coming around section. Um, I think the crowd is locked in with the band. They know how awesome this is. And then the band really draws out the, again, feedbacky like, echoey section right after that. And then Jerry really starts to, like, take off with the guitar. He, like, 
go for a little while, then back down a little bit. And then he's pretty much for the next like three minutes of the song, just oscillating between like building and then waning and then building back up to like a higher point and then coming back down a little bit to a slightly lower point and then back up, back down. And um, like you said, Phil is sounds really clear, but I think Bob is actually lost in the mix on this song. I, I don't really hear his guitar almost at all. Yeah, I hadn't taken I didn't take any notes on Bob until Turn on Your Love Light. So I, wow. I guess I agree. Yeah. Well, no, that that is that's fair. Um this is an odd show in that it's like all Jerry songs. Yeah. <laughs> like that's not what you normally get. I did the math. We have nine Jerry songs, two Bob songs and three Pigpen songs. So it's a very Jerry centric night. Um, this is one of two Bob songs that they played the whole show. And then there are others where it's like, you know, like, and we bid you good night. I think that's a Jerry song really. I mean, it's an everyone song, but yeah. Jerry's voice is the clearest on it. He's taking the vocal lead, but yeah, this song, Bob's voice sounds good. Uh, it's not like a situation where it's like that, but I just can't really hear his guitar in the mix. And it makes sense. There's a lot of other stuff that's kind of you know, elbowing for space in the mix here, especially the drummers. It's they're They sound really good on this. They're really in tandem, but I think the next song is where they hit their first set peak on the cryptical, uh, with the drummers. But, um, yeah, I think that this song is kind of a joint Jerry and Phil showcase at the end of the day, but it's excellent. I, I loved the song. This might be the highlight of set one for me is the other one. Disagree. Oh, okay. So anything else before we go into cryptical? Yes. Just one very small point. The keys, it's at like the, it's almost at the eight minute mark. Like they just come in, I think with one of those like slides, like the, and, uh, it was really nice. Yeah. He, he did that a couple of times throughout the show and it does sound good. I was thinking about it because this is the first TC show I've listened to in a while. And in Bill Kreutzmann's book, he talked about how he didn't, really view Tom Stanton as a member of the band. He viewed him as kind of like a, just like a dude who played with them. And it, he wrote it very respectfully. It was like, no offense. It's just like, he wasn't like a full member of the band in my view of it. And one thing he says is that he thinks that he got like stage fright basically. And like, for some reason he was better in the studio than he would be at shows. And he is a little bit you can hear it, especially at the beginning, I think, of Dark Star. He's, like, almost hesitant. He's, like, sitting back a little bit and not really doing as much. Um, maybe not really as confident in his role just five months into his time with the band. But, um, yeah, stuff like that, those little flourishes, I think, add a lot. And when you do hear him, it's not at any point throughout the show for me where I was like, oh, this fucking guy again. <laughs> you know, it was like when I would hear him come in, I was like, oh, cool. This sounds good. Mm-hmm. Next song is back to cryptical envelopment. The drummer guitar connection is so tight on this song, but especially around the three minute mark, the drummers are hitting like one and two and boom. And then like on the three, the entire band like explodes and they do it like consistently for like 45 seconds straight. Like this big explosive triumphant moment on the third beat. And, um, it's just awesome. It's so, it sounds so good and they are really locked in with each other, which is just awesome to hear. That's what, like exactly what I wrote down to. <laughs> I talked about the drummers having a, a swing switch at about the 330 to 340 uh, minute mark. 
equals awesome. Yeah, it is. It is fantastic. From that moment, they kind of mellow it on down um, into a more mellow ending. Uh, this is a much bluesier version than the last time we heard this song. It fits really well, but uh, yeah, I liked it. It's just it it sounds different in a cool way from just six months before. And it's a good transition to the bluesy sitting on top of the world that's coming next. Yeah, so. This is the second to last song of set one. They go straight from cryptical into sitting on top of the world. I don't really, I didn't have a ton of notes. I, I liked this. I thought that it was really like fun and bouncy. Like it just kind of kept it up and like, you know, you can really picture people dancing to this song. Jerry soloing around the one minute mark. I liked it reminded me a lot of what his guitar work sounds like on Chuck Berry covers. And I, I mean that in a good way. Mm-hmm. And I think that the real standout in this song though is Phil like his bass comes through really clearly and he's just doing great stuff throughout this. I don't know if it's like longer than normal or sorry, if it's shorter than normal, it's only three minutes long, but I I mean, I thought it was, I thought it was really good. I think that this is maybe what I would have expected them to open with after the greatest fucking rock and roll band in the world. Um, I could have seen them with this song at the top um, of the set list, maybe. And like I said, it is what they opened the night before with, so maybe they didn't want to do that back-to-back nights. I got you. But um, you can tell why this song would be a, a set opener. Straight from Sitting on Top of the World, they go into the last song of set one, Turn On Your Love Light. This was a song they played all three nights at the Ark. Not shockingly, it's the, the classic Pig Pen Showcase this is the shortest of the three and it is technically still part of this first set jam, but it's so long and self-contained that I almost don't think of it in those terms. It's, I mean, it's not only the only pig pen song, but it's just like, this is a totally different vibe. And I like that. I, I mean that in a good way because this song actually in this place reminds me of the role not fade away would play in set two, usually throughout the seventies where it's like, okay, we've just like gone out to space. <laughs> we've taken you on a journey and now we're just going to bring it back home with like, with not fade away, like kind of like a good rock and roll dance vibe, like more kind of status quo of what you might hear at other concerts throughout the time. Turn on your love light's not exactly that, but it's like, it's like Pigpen's taking you to horny church to end set one. It's, um, it's his horny gospel at the end, if you will. And it's like kind of just like a good, fun dance vibe. You could see people kind of getting up, moving, being excited about this, and it ending set one on a really in a really good place before they kind of go refill their beers, do whatever they need to do between sets to get ready for set two. Yeah, I, I was driving the first time that I, uh, that I had this show playing through and i i couldn't believe what i was hearing because it was so good like i i know this is like their you know the big closer the big ender usually but wow like i just wow i texted you seconds after it finished i texted you 
Is this the best set one closer of the 1960s decade? Do you mean this song or this specific version? Both. <laughs> I don't I don't know enough of like the 1960s set one closers uh, <laughs> to uh, comment definitively. I know that I really liked it a lot. And like I said, I think that like the vibe of it just suits the end of set one really, really well. Yeah, I, I don't know enough. I'm not enough of a love light head to say that this is like the best one either. Honestly, I'm glad I, that you liked it so much, though. That makes I, me happy. I was just like, I was really, really digging the like explosions that were coming out. And the first one's at about uh, 210, 215. I mean, just a symphony of Bob grooving on the rhythm guitar keys are grooving behind him jerry sounds so clean doing the high part of like that chorus melody and and it was like that's first time yeah a little after two minutes and then a little bit at the eight minute mark like another burst forward that just makes you catch your breath at the nine minute mark i thought is where phil really got going on the bass like helping carry him into that the like you know the, the lull down where we hear how good pig penis it sucks <laughs> and, and, back and or masturbation yeah, continue could be. uh could be and then just the like the build-up the like three minute drawn out build-up like you know you had these two huge explosions before and they're building up and you know it's coming you know it's coming and it, it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't and they're building up building up and then they roar right back into it and I thought everything about that the build-up it wasn't too short it drew it out long enough to get you excited, but it wasn't too long and it just roared in and the ending is so perfect for set one. I mean, there is, there is no way that you were leaving, you know, to get home early to be at work Thursday morning after hearing that turn on your love light. You were sticking around for set two guaranteed. I, I love that analysis. I'm glad that you provided it for me and the audience. For me, this song and Dark Star both, I really got the warts and all vibe from the dead. So I think that we have slightly different feelings about it. Um, so I also thought that it was a good version. Jerry's solo around like the three minute mark really reminds me a lot of Jessica by the Allman Brothers. Um, I, this is four years before that song was released, so it's not like he was trying to copy it. But the what he's doing sounds like that song to me. Then I like the, the drum break in the middle. I thought that was really cool. The warts part, though, for me, is the um, shine on me part. The beginning of that sounds super jumbled to me, but then they pull it together super well, and they are just like like fully locked in by the end of it. And so that's kind of where the wart part comes in for me is like the beginning of that. The singing isn't all together, but then it gets like really tight and really sweet um, at the end of that, which sounds really good to me. This song, not not my favorite Grateful Dead song because of how horny it is, um, especially when Pigpen starts to talk about, like, get your hand out of your pocket, like that whole thing about <laughs> yeah. masturbation. I'm not as crazy about that. Not really like what I'm, you know, there's a long and storied history of masturbation-related songs. Not a big fan of any of them, to be completely honest. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it depends. I mean... I definitely like 
So like the version that they do of this song at Woodstock is like 45 minutes long. Oh my gosh. I definitely don't like 45 minute long versions of this song. <laughs> this is more in my wheelhouse of like a 17, 18 minute one. Mm-hmm. So I take it this is your favorite song of set one. Yeah. Oh yeah. And to that point, this is not one of my favorite dead songs, but it's late 60s dead. You know you're going to get a turn on your love light. Why yeah. not have it be this just gas version of this song, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, you're you're definitely right about that. Okay, so that, that's good. We have different favorite songs from set one. Mine, like I said, the other one into Cryptical. I don't, it's hard for me to say which one I liked better um, of those two. But, I mean, overall, a good set one. I. It seems like maybe when I said I kind of noticed the warts um, on this set, it seems like maybe you kind of were more amenable to just looking past it and being like, I'm here for the, for the ride. I'm not going to even pay attention to the warts. I don't care. I'm going to enjoy the music for what it is and not like really dwell on that, which I think is kind of, kind of nice. I think the warts helped or were fine in set one mm-hmm. and were for me more of a problem in set two. Okay. I agree with that for sure. Definitely. <laughs> um, we'll get into that now as a matter of fact. So set two begins with morning dew. So apparently that guy who was calling for it after he was a friend of mine didn't have to wait till morning. He would get it at the beginning of set two. This song was played 277 times by the dead, but only about seven times as a set two opener. So this was kind of a rarity that you would get it this early in set two. The start to this song and this set with these big symbols it's so dramatic. I the note that I wrote is um, it sounds like the dawning of the universe, which I think is purposeful. Ooh. Like this song is like a post-apocalyptic song where it's like you know you can almost think of those symbols as like the bombs falling. Yeah, this this song is about like they go outside like the morning after a nuclear explosion, right? Yeah, that is what this is about. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know if it's the morning after because there's the whole part about like thought I heard a baby crying and it's like you didn't hear no baby crying like that's not right. a thing that happens anymore um but either way yeah the, in the time after a nuclear reaction or a nuclear war and so i think that 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 big symbol sound is like really perfect and i loved that as the start to the set and the song um that sound also goes away once they start playing in bigger venues i think it's harder to accomplish that and so it's cool that it's still in a small enough venue where they can really do that so uh, yeah, I thought that the the Jerry solo at the end was the best part of this song, and then the at nine fifteen the ending drum roll from Kreutzmann was just like per, like a as perfect a drum roll as you could imagine at the end of this song. Overall, my my review is it's a fine version, but not a particular standout morning duo for me. I wrote just a fine version of a beautiful song. Yeah, this is a great song.
Okay. I think we're about to get into the most challenging part of this set list. Mm-hmm. Would you agree or disagree? Yeah. This, if you wanted to skip one song, <laughs> you could skip hard to handle. No one would care. I actually think you're one song early on that, my friend. Oh. But hard to handle. Okay. So we both probably grew up with the Black Crows version of this song. Yes. So that's a very different vibe than this, for sure. Uh, this song, Welcome Back to the Jerry's Slide, um, it makes a triumphant return on this song. The first two minutes are rough. <laughs> they really are. I mean, the, the, I was trying to like make sense of why, and I think that it's like too formulaic, which makes it sound almost choppy. Like rather than them being kind of like just listening and playing and like doing what they feel is like, you know, being guided by the music, they're like trying to like stick to a formula of like, this is what a blues song sounds like. Let's play it as a blues song. And it, it loses something um, for that. I think it makes it sound almost choppy, but then by like the three or four minute mark, they find it in time for the mid song solo that Jerry rips off. And then I think that they rescue this song. I think that it's like, like a big wart in the beginning. But I also think that maybe the reason why I like this song a little bit more is like Pigpen really owns this song. Like the, it is a little bit yodely, but like the baby, like he, he really does own it. And so, yeah, I didn't think that this was like the nadir of set two, but I did think that it got off to a rough start. The the big thing that stood, stood out to me is like right as the chorus ends, it goes into that like three part like bam bam bam, and the first I think it happens three times in the song, and the first two times that they do it, the drums and the keys are out of sync, and it's yeah. like guys, yeah, <laughs> and, and not like they're a little off, they are off, like there's a noticeable gap, and uh, they figure it out the very last time through, uh, but this was a. This was the warts of the warts and all for me. This was the the wartiest. Yeah, that's fair. The next song for me is is the the wartiest part of the show. I have never really liked this song. It's doing that rag. I think. So this is like a Hunter Garcia original. This song, and like compare this song to Uncle John's band that they wrote later on this year. This, their songwriting is like still in its juvenile stage at this point for doing that rag. And I think that it's not a particularly interesting song. So they just throw a bunch of like chord changes and tempo changes in to like try to make it a little bit more interesting. And it just doesn't really click for me. The other thing is it's a bit hard to swallow right after hard to handle with like pig pen and like the kind of earnest vocals that he's providing there. And then in comparison, Jerry singing this song doesn't sound nearly as like right. Um, I will say the first night of this run, they played drums into a jam into doing that rag. And I found it much more tolerable than I did on this show. I like that version better. I listened to this song probably like four or five times, just like trying to like find an entry point to like actually (laughs) like it. And I just couldn't. Well, my entry point and I, the reason I, actually kind of ended up liking this song by the end was the four thirty five minute mark. There's like a back and forth with like Jerry and then, and then the keys and then Jerry come and they kind of, you know, go back and forth. Mm-hmm. That interplay I thought was, was nice. Uh, and I liked the cowbell making a stand at the end. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's fair. I just, I think that there's a reason why this song was retired in October of 1969 and never brought back. Like, I think that they recognize that this is not the peak of the Hunter Garcia songwriting experience. And I'm okay with it being retired at that point. (laughs) (laughs) I think a far more interesting song is the one that comes afterward, Alligator. A very solid alligator. Yeah, it is. And this is the real beginning of the second set jam. It, and it begins with really phenomenal drums. It weirdly reminded me of the song Danny California by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Obviously like 30 years. No, 27-ish years before that song came out. And that's not like an extremely difficult drum I think it's song. like 40. I think California came out in Oh, duh. Yeah, I'm doing terrible math. It, it came out in like 2006 or 7 because I was in high school. Oh, six. Yeah, I think you're right. So yeah, you're right. Almost 40 years. Um, but yeah, so like 40 years before Danny California and Danny California is obviously just like a classic rudimentary drum beat. But like that, that is what this kind of sounded like. It's just a good, like fun time song alligator and Pigpen sounds even more yodely in this song, but it works. This song was stuck in my head all week because of this version. I, I mean, and this was another song that was retired pretty shortly after this in 1971. Um, Pigpen still played for another year with the band after that, but they just didn't really perform it after that. And then they didn't perform it without him. Um, I think that Bob has, though, with uh, maybe not with Dead and Company, but with like Further or something like that. They've they've played this song since then. This was the this was the high point of set two for me. Wow. Was this alligator? I loved in particular how the guitar, like in the solo, it kind of stayed with a lower tone. Like Jerry mm-hmm. didn't go way up the neck, way up the octave. He like stayed low and it had a really cool sound. That's at like the 220 ish mark. I just thought, this is tight too. This is what, three and a half? I've got 350. Yeah. So short, but mm-hmm. sweet. Yeah, I agree. This is when they kind of rescued uh, set two for I think both of us. Hard to handle yes. doing that rag. Then we get into Alligator and it's like, all right, now we're back back in it. We're off to the races. We get from Alligator into a drums and jam section. Um, it's it's good. I mean, it's very organ forward, uh, the jam part of this drums into jam, uh, which is kind of cool. It's cool to hear what, TC was offering on the electric organ. It sounds kind of doorsy at times. And maybe that's just because the doors were like an electric organ band. And so it like, I just kind of connect that in my head, but I thought that that sounded good. And then at the end, um, taking us from the jam into the 11, what the drummers were doing was really good. Just like a big high energy flourishing sound, uh, as the jam ended. Did you have any specific notes about drums and jam? I did. I think as you pointed out, pointed out, the the organ helped this a lot because I think that and it's unfair to compare this to the '68 show because it's so different. But I think that this jam was a lot more focused than that '68 jam mm-hmm. uh, that kind of helped end that set. And I really, really liked it. I was digging it. Would you compare it favorably or unfavorably against the feedback section that comes later on? This jam and this feedback. Mm-hmm. Oh, I thought this feedback was really good. Yeah, they're I both good. I mean, they are. I mean, they're, it, they're very different. Yeah, they are different. I, 
I think less favorably and that I think like the feedback was like a little better, but this jam now this is kind of when I was like, okay, set two's rolling. Yeah. It's, it's also the, the point in the set that it comes in and the function that it serves with the higher energy part where feedback is lower energy, I think works really well. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, so it goes into the 11, which is a song that you and I both loved the last, the last show, 10, 12, 68. It's the song that both of us, um, chose to take for our, you know, imaginary Grateful Dead playlist. I still stand by this. It is also the song that Lotus Wizard, uh, one of our fans on Twitter, reached out to say that he was listening to that show, and he agreed. This is the song that he said he would take. So shout out to you, Lotus Wizard. Uh, hope you're enjoying this episode too. But that that version in 68 was phenomenal. This version was also good. I don't think that it's as high in my book as the 68 version. It is far more avant-garde and spacey than the 68 version. I almost think that the last 10 minutes of this song could have just been labeled jam, and it would have been just as honest as continuing to call that um, the 11. This is a 17-minute long version, and they go way out there. The sound from Phil is great, and the kind of transition that they make into this spacey dark segment that I'm kind of talking about. It's around the seven minute mark, like six 45, maybe there's just like really good. The word that keeps coming to my mind is lyricism of Jerry solo. There's like a clear beginning middle and then like a crescendo to the solo that he's doing. It's like telling a story almost. And then they go into a mountain jam, which is a, just a very brief segment then into a theme, like a segment that's like the I Bid You Good Night theme that they start playing, and then back into a more traditional, like 11 based part. But then they close it out by going way out there. There's, I mean, the note that I have is they were playing with wide open ears because anytime one person hints at anything, they just run with it. <laughs> like, there's. There's just a lot. It's kind of like Dark Star at the beginning of the show where it's like there's not one thing that they're doing. There's like 10. Yeah. That's such a great comparison. This is kind of like the Dark Star of set two. Don't don't really know what else there is to say about it. It's cool <laughs> yeah. and spacey. Um, and then they come out of that into caution. Do not stop on the tracks. I mean, <laughs> this is just a rad song man the the all we need segment so like comparatively what we were talking about with um the end of love or the part of love light when it's i was like yeah the vocals just like weren't like locked in this is that to an extreme where it's like raw like the Mm. all we need all we need is so raw but it sounds really cool as a result of it because it doesn't sound like they're trying to do it on time or in any semblance of like normal music. Organization. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, 
and so the song like halts and then comes back in with just a blaze of symbols and feedback and it's just really cool the the end is just like overflowing with energy and it's a perfect launching pad for the feedback track that comes after it uh what did you think of caution totally agree i think the high point is at about the 645 mark keys are burning and bob is crushing the rhythm guitar there liked that thought it went into feedback really cool this feedback is significantly shorter than the one we talked about before like five minutes shorter but i thought it was so much better it's got this like tight beautiful sound with the feedback um as opposed to the the raw noise of the 68 show which was still cool but yeah this i was like oh this is like a song that 68 shows feedback was just sound if that mm-hmm. makes sense i think that what you're saying about this being more of a song relates to the fact that they're out on the road i was saying this kind of in defense of that segment of the end of the show last time that they were just doing weird shit because it's what they wanted to do <laughs> in their hometown shows at, the, at that point. There seems to be more of a cohesive thing happening here, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, if you're looking for evidence of that, look no further than the fact that this, at the end, so you've got this, like you said, this kind of cool sound. There's a glockenspiel or a xylophone, one or the other, in the beginning of this that sounds really cool. And then you add that with the feedbacky guitars, and it's like this... The note that I have is it sounds like the primordial ooze. Ooh. It, it, it's just wild, the sound. Then they bring the vibe all the way down, and they bring the show all the way around from He Was a Friend of Mine to ending with And We Bid You Good Night. Beautiful ending to this show. When you were saying that like you were kind of maybe looking for a more satisfactory ending to the show in 68, there in my mind, and this is evidenced by the fact that we close all of our episodes with this there's no more satisfying ending to a grateful dead show of this era than and we bid you good night and the way that feedback works into it by bringing the vibe all the way down is just perfect i think that it's a as good a transition into into bid you good night as i think i've ever heard i love it bid you good night i think it's a great version it's there they do some longer versions and some shorter versions of this song but this is a very long slow quiet version the percussionists really add a lot with like the very subtle adornments that they're putting on um, in the background and phil's voice sounds so good i mean Mm -hmm. his baritone adds a lot to what's going on in the song and it makes me wonder if the fact that his voice was gone by the time they came back from the hiatus is the reason why they only broke the song out by my count 13 times afterward the other thing shout out to the audience they're clapping this is not like an easy clapping beat to go along with and they they nailed it and to the point where at the end jerry goes that's it you got it like almost like surprised that they do but yeah, it's it's a really cool full circle thing from the like I said the soft and sweet opening of the show to this part of the end. And I also love that they saved this song for the last of three nights at Boston. It's just great. Then there's a long applause break. The crowd is frothing for an encore. <laughs> and um one guy, I don't know if you heard this, just kept yelling, "More! More!" <laughs> And then other people start joining him, but like the entire like three minutes of 
of encore break this guy's just yelling more <laughs> um and i i mean i get why I, yeah as much as we talked about the warts of this show i thought it was overall really good and i think this was a great ending to it what was what was your take on this bid you good night completely agree yeah it's this isn't like a song you can really hyper analyze it's very simple but it's great and it's effective the way they used it here so the crowd you know like i said long applause break band steps off stage for a minute and then they come back to an encore that starts with the beginning of not fade away and then they stop and bob says we're going to take a minute here to tune up and someone from the crowd goes yells go ahead (laughs) (laughs) which (laughs) very encouraging i and that's nice and then they go into um it's all over now baby blue which is fantastic. This is a Bob Dylan cover. The song was originally released by Dylan in 65 and originally covered by the dead in 66. So just a year after Dylan released it. Um, and a bit of a rarity in this era, this was the 11th time they had played this song. Like I said, the first being in 66. So it was not a frequent occurrence that this song would appear in a dead set list around this time of the 150 times that they played it. The majority are in the Brent era and afterward, even with Vince, but man, I love this song and um, I really like this version of it. What, what did you think about It's All Over Now, Baby Blue? I think it's, I think it's a beautiful song. I kind of saw it as similar to the um, He Was a Friend of Mine, like a beautiful song, mm-hmm. but not what the vibe called for. Because I thought we already had the beautiful ending with the feedback into bid you good night so we could have done not fade away not fade away yeah (laughs) yeah that's fair i mean to defend this call i do think that maybe not fade away if we would have heard it it might have sounded like too much whiplash i guess no you know what you're probably right though because it does have a nice soft ending to it um but you didn't think that like the middle section of the song was i thought it was pretty hot the the middle section of um baby blue i mean it's it's quiet and it definitely has a quiet ending, but um, in the... Are you talking about like the three-ish minute mark? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it builds up and... Just not just again, not exactly what you were looking for in this moment. Yeah. It, and I, I, I get, you know, to end the, the run, the three-night run, it's all over now. How fitting, like very appropriate. But I just going off like the moment and you know what's happening in the in the theater at that time you know not not bad just you would have liked if their guitars had been in tune and they could have just played not fade away (laughs) (laughs) sure yeah yeah that's fair i i like i said i did like this song um bob dylan and the dead obviously were buds they toured together and bob dylan famously asked if he could join the grateful dead and was told no by phil um, in the late eighties, I don't have any idea what that would have sounded like in fairness. I think wow. Phil was right about that. <laughs> if like 1989, now the newest member of the grateful dead, Bob fucking Dylan, I don't really know how that would work. <laughs> and so I think that Phil was definitely in the right to say no. Jerry and Bob apparently wanted to let him do it. It's interesting. I think that, um, I think everyone in the band, I know that both Phil and Kreutzmann talked about it in their biographies that I read or their autobiographies that they like loved Dylan and were like genuinely starstruck to be around him when they were working out how to play these songs. 
But I would think that we're, it would be even harder because when Bob Dylan was first like hitting, he was like 13 and 14 years old. And that's like the prime age to have like a rock icon or a rock idol. And I guarantee you his was Bob Dylan. And then, you know, fast forward 25 years and he's on stage with his hero. I can see why, especially him, he would be like, I want this guy to be in the band. Um, But the Bob Dylan quote that I was going to read is, strangely enough, sometimes we'll hear a cover of a song and figure we can do just as well. If somebody else thought so highly of it, why don't I? Some of these arrangements I just take. The Dead did a lot of my songs, and we'll take the whole arrangement because they did it better than me. Jerry Garcia could hear a song in all my bad recordings, you know, the song that was buried there. That's from a 2006 Rolling Stone interview. And I thought that that was really interesting that Dylan really liked the way that Jerry interpreted his songs and played them. And I really, I agree. I mean, I think that they they covered so many Dylan songs and continue to today. And I like some of the Bob ones, like uh, this past summer, one of the shows that I saw them at, he did um, Queen Jane Approximately and Desolation Row, and I like both of those. Um, but I like, I really like the way that Jerry does Dylan covers, um, especially, and so I thought that this was cool. So some last notes about this show before we get into our kind of closing segment. It was really unique to me that there were so many more Jerry songs compared to Bob and Pigpen songs but his voice did sound really great all night. I think noticeably more consistent than the 68 show. I think that you can really hear him becoming a better singer at this point in time, which is interesting to say like four years into the Grateful Dead and like seven years into him playing music, at least pseudo-professionally, but it's noticeable and it will hit a peak the following year, I think, on um, Working Man's Dead and American Beauty. I don't think his voice ever sounded better than it did on those two records. They ended this run with the longest show of the three. This this show is about 25 minutes longer than the, the previous two nights shows. So they really kind of hit, hit it hard and let the crowd let left them off on a great note. Um, at the end, Jerry says, Thanks a lot. We'll see you next time we're back in town. You've been good people. <laughs> and I thought that was just like kind of a nice ending. I think that that about puts a bow on it. For me, what do you got for last things, Dave? This was the first show we've done and sat down to record where I did not, I was not torn between songs thinking what I liked the most about this show. I thought like as a honorable mention, shout out the alligator and set two, so solid. Everybody was fighting for second place, uh, for the love light. And then what won second place, I think in my book, that dark star at the beginning. More than fair for me, I'm taking, uh, the cryptical, um, I don't think that I can get away with taking the whole suite, cryptical through cryptical. Although I do think that it's more satisfying, honestly, to hear it that way. I wish that some of these, like audience or these soundboard versions, would put it all as one song, so you, you didn't have to have like the little cuts between them. That's a, such a minor nitpick, but. Um, yeah, if I only get to take one, I'm taking Cryptical because of the, the drum guitar synergy going on there. And um, I'm happy to have it on my playlist, I must say. <laughs> Anything else? Any other final notes before we send the people back home, tell them they've been good people and send them on their way? No, just uh, Mama Heart 
is in my brain. I need some chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, actually, you know, there is one last thing we need to say what show we're going to be talking about next. Oh, right, right, right. So we, now that we're through the Jim and Marilyn section, we didn't really know where to go with our next show. We both wanted to do a show from the Brent era for our next show. Now that we've done pig pen shows, God, God show shows, and nope, nothing from the Brent era. I heard the box of rain, which was released on views from the vault. So a official DVD release and box of rain is one of my favorite grateful dead songs, but it's not one that I really go out of my way to look for live recordings of because the album version is perfect. Number one. And number two, because Phil's voice was tough. Like he had a hard time with it, uh, in the later seventies and eighties. But this version from the nineties, I think is the best I've ever heard his voice sounding post seventies to the point where it stood out so much that I made a reminder in my phone to text you about it the next day and see if you would want to do this show. So that's how we picked this next one. 7-12-1990 from RFK Stadium. And we are going to have whiplash, Dave. Going from 68 to 69 to 90. I mean, buckle up, baby, because it's going to be... I mean, I think that this one is going to be like, when you talk about warts and all, they're going to be some big old warts. But I'm excited to dive in and to see what 1990 dead have for us. Let's do it. All right. Well, on that note, we will bid you good night. 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 That's it. That's it. You got it.